Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Stacks, a podcast about books and the people who read them. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and our guest today is Van Newkirk. Van is a journalist and a senior editor at The Atlantic and the host of the Floodlines podcast that chronicles the events of Hurricane Katrina. We talk today about what led Van into journalism, his pattern of using books as a way to dive deeper into the worlds he didn't learn about in school, and the lessons we have to learn around Hurricane Katrina and climate disasters in America. The Stacks Book Club pick for February is The New Wilderness by Diane Cook, and we will discuss the book in detail with Van on Wednesday, February 24th. If you want to show the Stacks some love, consider joining the Stacks Pack on Patreon. That's a group of people who enjoy this podcast and commit a monthly amount to support the work of this show. They make the show possible, and in exchange, they earn perks like our virtual book club, discounts on merch, and shoutouts on the show. If you want to join, head to patreon.com slash the Stacks. This week, I'm giving extra special love to some of our newest members, and they are Annie Palumbo, Kristen Kennedy, Maddie Gartenstein, Leanne Zinzemeister, Michaela A., Kelly Marble, Meg, Shelby Grain, Corbin Livingston, and Amy Brown. I cannot thank you all enough for making the stacks a reality. Okay, I'm very excited for you all to meet Van Newkirk. All right, everybody. I'm so excited today. I am here with one of my personal favorite journalists. I'm here with Van Newkirk. Van, welcome to the stacks. Thank you for having me. Uh, This is like, you have no idea how excited this makes me. Um, I have loved you from, I I think I first was like following you on social media, which we have to talk about because I don't think you have it anymore. Um, And then you went to the Atlantic and we started subscribing to the Atlantic because you were there and we liked your stuff so much. So we're big fans in this house of your work, which is always exciting to talk to someone you think is really cool. So, I'm, And for people who don't know Van, he writes at The Atlantic. You're an editor, a senior editor, and you do politics, you do environment, you do race. Um, what else is on your beat that I'm missing? Um, I think uh, politics, race, environment probably sums most of it up um, <laughs> right now. I mean, that's a lot of things to sum up. Um, right now, I'm really focused on especially uh, climate justice and voting rights. Yes, 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 yes. That, that, and um, I, of course, will link to Van's stuff on the, in, at The Atlantic for those of you who 
aren't familiar with his that work. But we'll start with just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So um, aside from the work stuff, I was born and raised in North Carolina. Uh, I claim I, I lived in a bunch of different places in North Carolina, but the one I call home now is uh, Rocky Mount 252. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think a lot of that kind of just informs a lot of the work that I do. Uh, we were hit by some pretty big floods, pretty bad floods. And uh, ever since then, I've been really interested in the environment and public health in the reason why some people seem to suffer greater burdens than others. Uh, and that those thoughts, that upbringing have really carried me throughout my career. Before the Atlantic, I was actually in public health. I worked mm. for Kaiser Family Foundation and uh, assumed that I was going to pursue a long career in public health uh, and health policy. But it didn't quite feel right to me. Uh, it was, I was dealing with things that were life and death for lots of people. I was looking at numbers for people who were uninsured, who had early deaths or had, you know, higher mortality rates, but it felt entirely disconnected from the lives people were actually leading. Hmm. So while I was there, I started freelancing a little bit to scratch that itch to be able to put actual faces to these statistics and uh, found out that I, it was what I really loved. Did you know you liked writing? Like, was that always a passion of yours? Or was that something that you sort of discovered as a creative outlet during that time when you were at pu doing public health? I think the jury is still out on whether <laughs> I actually enjoy writing. Okay. So that's a, that's a, that's a big assumption. Uh, no, I, I'm, I'm dyslexic. Okay. And so that was never really on the menu of mm. choices for me uh, growing up. I was always good at the quantitative stuff, the math, the mm. science. Uh was supposed to be a doctor. Mm. I think every you know kid who's smart in science back home, you're supposed to be a doctor. Right, right, right. Um, but what I do love and what has propelled me through journalism is talking to people. Mm. So... Uh, you know, I, I get a chance. I, I'm I'm blessed. I get to ask people questions for a living, and see how they see the world. And so that's to me the essence of the journalism. The writing is kind of secondary, to be honest. Right. So then, how? I mean, I love that as someone who loves to ask questions. I decided that I I do not like to write at all, and I was like, let me just not. Let me just skip trying to be a journalist and just talk to people and not have to write anything down. So I think I one-upped you there, but <laughs> but your job is way cooler. But how then do you navigate sort of the challenges of dyslexia with the day-to-day, -day, you know, requirements of your job? Like how, I mean, it must get really challenging sometimes and, and you must have figured out ways to make it more doable if it's something that you do every single day for years. I mean, you've been a journalist for six, seven, eight years now, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Six, seven. Yeah. Well, one of the biggest challenges of dyslexia, people think of it as a, you know, reading and writing problem, but it's fundamentally an organizational problem, mm. a, a difference in the way that your brain processes and handles and puts information in little boxes, whatever it does. Dyslexic brains don't do the same as other folks' brains. And mm -hmm. so there are lots of 
things, systems and structures you can put in place that can make it a little easier to to do the basic mechanics of reading and writing. But the main hangup is 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 following that structure and making it make sense for yourself is also part of the disorder. Right. And so um, <laughs> a lot of work for me has actually been in basically drilling myself to use systems and structures to have very specific, methodical, formulaic almost ways that I structure stories, mm-hmm. ways that I structure ideas and have a very specific concrete process for making sure that an idea in my head makes sense to other people's heads. So I have like a, a pitching process. Um, I make sure that every pitch that I have, it meets certain criteria um, and I always bring it to other people just to make sure that it's not something that's jumbled out of my mind. Right. When you have those structures in place, it actually makes the the writing piece of it a bit easier because you know, I have editors who can help me on the line to line stuff. Right. Um, right and I, right. trust me, I need a lot of it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, you, you can't really do this if you don't have the ideas, the structure of your, the actual overall architecture of the story together. Yeah. Well, that sort of leads me into my next question, which is how do you come up with what you want to write about? How, like, there's so many things in the world. And even when we talk about sort of the two things you're focused on right now, which is environmental justice and voting rights, like, there are hundreds of thousands of stories within those frameworks. So how do you decide, okay, this is what I want to spend time on? Because you are you don't write, I mean, you do write shorter pieces, but a lot of your stuff is really long, you know, what I would assume takes months and months to craft some of these, um, some of these you know, investigative journalism pieces. So how do you decide this is what I want to focus on for the next six months or two months or whatever that looks like? Well, for picking those frameworks specifically, I try to choose the things that I believe would be most impactful for daily life back home, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, I, I think growing up Black in North Carolina and Eastern North Carolina, to me, climate change and the overall shape of our democracy are the are the biggest two issues i think facing the future of that community um mm. and within that i try to just locate the stories that are going to take me to the next story so uh, a lot of you know uh, before 2019 most of my stories were shorter form and a lot of it was beat rhythmic stuff on a beat so i was right. finding specific policy issues that uh, if I could get to the bottom of them would lead me to the next problem or solution in the community. And, and and how I found that out was a lot of the reporting I do doesn't necessarily go into the story. It's it's asking experts, it's asking people in the community what they believe is the most important thing, or what they believe, what policies I should be looking at or, or what issues I should be looking at that if we can resolve them, if we can bring new perspective or light to them, will make their lives easier. And so that uh, is basically the framework that guides the entirety of my journalism is I'm always doing informal temperature taking, reporting, asking folks questions about the challenges in their lives. And basically finding stories is easy after that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I want to ask you about something that I am sort of obsessed with as a consumer of the news. And 
it's this idea of quote unquote neutrality in journalism as a way to really mean like white maleness in journalism or like approved by white men or seen as not engaging with quote unquote identity politics, though white maleness is identity politics, but that's a whole other thing. So how do you push back on that in your work? I mean, you've clearly said that you're writing for folks back home. Um, and so I'm wondering how you ne- navigate sort of this idea of neutrality when you're clearly writing stories for or with a certain group in mind. Obviously, your stories are can be for everyone, but I'm just curious how that works in your mind. Well, one thing I always want to point out first is that I, I have the privilege of writing for a magazine, which mm-hmm. has slightly different views and standards on bias and things like that than, say, the New York Times. Right. Um, so for me, a lot of what we write at The Atlantic is is argumentative, has very strong perspectives. I view myself as more of a reporter than some of those stronger perspectives. But within that, the it's clear to me that my reported perspective or bias is toward justice or toward what I believe will actually improve the lives of, of people who need to have their lives improved the most. Right. Um, and that is not something I try to hide or uh, run away from in what I do. As far as the conversation in larger media, uh, one thing I always remind folks of is that this conversation we're having on bias, on whatever shape and form reporting should be in the media, it's a very young conversation. Mm. The New York Times didn't even have these standards for un- non-bias until like the 19, like World War One. Mm-hmm. So we're really talking about a century or so of professional ethics and guidelines that have been shaped by a few large outlets. And so for me, that is not, you know, the entirety of journalism. Mm-hmm. Actually, for the entire history of journalism, this idea of, of being unbiased is seriously new. Mm-hmm. Uh, most publications before that phase in the New York Times history were were blatantly political and right. often blatantly racist <laughs> to be right. honest um but you know beyond that we are in a place where we should be rethinking at least that last century of journalism what it has done what it has meant for us where it is has succeeded and where it's failed right and then when you really do that sort of excavation to me, the question of bias becomes almost irrelevant hmm. because then we're rethinking the actual shape and form of media itself. And when we do that, you know, I think there's so much more space for service journalism, for community oriented journalism, hmm. for uh, people who aren't necessarily professional reporters to be involved in journalism. And then when you when you talk about those structures and those concepts being involved, it becomes impossible to talk about this enterprise as one where people should be unbiased. Right. For me, the, the question is whether you interrogate your bias. Right. And that's good journalism. Right. Right. That's so, that's so just right on. I just love, love that answer. Um, okay. Before we, I have a whole other thing that I want to talk about, but before we get there, I need to know how you experience the news and the world around you 
and the way that people interact with news and all of that when you are not on social media because you were very active on Twitter. That's where I mm-hmm. found you and I and then you just sort of disappeared one day and that was probably what like 3 years ago? It was 2. 2? 2? Yeah. So how yeah. has that changed the way that you take in news, the way you think about news, the way you think about audience because I know so many journalists are on social media to sort of gauge what's going on and like talk to their peers about things. So I'm just curious how that's changed for you and if it's changed anything in your actual work or if it was all just sort of like a mental health, like I need to get away from these crazies type thing. Well, to be clear, you know, I, I left after some, after I got dragged for old tweets um, and they were not great old tweets. Mm. Um, they were misogynist and awful and I apologized for them and continue to apologize for them. Mm-hmm. I think uh, I took a small hiatus right after that dragging to sort Mm -hmm. of figure things out um in life and in regards to my relationship with social media Mm -hmm. and then like a whole bunch of life happened Mm. uh my mother got sick again i had a cousin pass away had a lot of things happen that made me realize that i needed to be more present Mm. in family life in my community in in places around me And I had spent a lot of time over the previous decade. I I think I was on social media. I mean, social media, I was on for like 15 years, which at that point was over half my life. Right. And I'd spent a lot of time building communities there and uh, building relationships there and taking it seriously in a way that I don't know that I took life offline as seriously and intentionally. And so for me, you know, that intended to be brief hiatus turned into a now two years of really trying to be more intentional about interactions. I don't want to say real life because I believe digital life is real. Yes. But interactions offline. And honestly, like the news question, I think you'll find that no matter how far away you are from your own social media accounts, there are not enough, you know, our circles are so tightly tied to social media anyways. Mm-hmm. You're always going to have people sending you tweets. You're always going to be in slacks where people are sharing them. So it's not like I'm like a hermit and have been away <laughs> from the news forever and ever. Um, I, I know pretty acutely what's going on in the, in, in the digital world. And, uh, you know, now I just uh, I read the actual paper now. I read the Post and the Times and try to read, uh, you know, I, I edit the Atlantic Magazine. And so I try to read the magazine. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, uh, I do a lot more reading than I used to of actual long form publications. But aside from that, you know, I don't know if my media information landscape has changed much. Do you feel like it's harder to promote your own work because you're not on social media? Perhaps. Um, but that's, I guess, part of the territory that I accepted when I left. Yeah. You know, and I think it's given me, while it is more difficult to promote things, it's given me a more of an impetus and more of a necessity really to build real life networks for, Mm. for promoting things, for actual interest in what I do Mm -hmm. and not just, 
you know, here's my story. Maybe you'll read it. Right. Um, for being interested in other folk stuff and building actual intellectual bonds. So, you know, before, I don't think people in my neighborhood would have said that I, you know, knew the things that I wrote, but now they do. Now people in my church know what I write. And I think those uh, are actually, just in terms of raw metrics and mechanics, actually more effective at getting people to actually read and absorb what you do. Right. Because there's like that human face to face sort of connection. Okay. We're going to transition slightly to your other major project that I think some folks might know you for, um, which is Floodlines, which is your podcast about Hurricane Katrina. Um, Can you tell us just a little bit about how the podcast sort of came to you, how this opportunity, how you decided that you wanted to do this? Like why tell the story of Hurricane Katrina in 2020? Sort of just give us like where your head was at when you decided to embark on this. So the idea for Floodlines was birthed or came to be after I came back from covering Hurricane Maria. Mm. in Puerto Rico. Okay. Um, you know, I, I'd, I'd spent uh, about two weeks on the island right after the storm and uh, spent a lot of time trying to figure out what we could learn as a country, what we could learn about the future of Puerto Rico, what we could learn about environmental justice from what happened after that storm because to be clear you know most of the damage most of the deaths most of the tragedy was in the days after Hmm. that storm Mm -hmm. so i got back uh to dc took some time to decompress and was trying to think about what is it what what it was that was bugging me there was something in the that was just like an itch that was bothering me. And I kept thinking about, I kept fearing that all the reporting we were going to do, all the reporting we had done, all the things that we had learned about that particular disaster were already being forgotten. Hmm. We're already, we're already kind of memory holing it as this this one-off terrible thing that happened. And in real time, I was watching people kind of lose the thread on the underlying poverty, the underlying issues of status, the underlying issues of democracy and belonging and race that were clearly evident in what had happened to the people after Hurricane Maria. Hmm. And that thought led me to the realization that we had done the exact same thing with Hurricane Katrina. Hmm. Hurricane Katrina was important to me growing up because I was watching, it was six years after uh, my hometown had been flooded by Hurricane Floyd. And at that point, you know, people were still in my hometown. They were still drinking poisoned well water that had been poisoned during that flood. They were still, there were still people living in uh, the original FEMA trailers, actually, after Floyd. So, Seeing Hurricane Katrina on the news in 2005 was like watching people discover all the different heartbreaks of where I lived Mm. 
on a national level and caring about them in a way they never cared about what happened to us. But then the same thing happened as after Maria, is people just kind of forgot all that. We had actual hearings in front of the federal government about reparations, about people, Black people, feeling that the federal government had specifically targeted them in a racist incident. These were major, you know, things that were happening, going on in 2005, 2006, 2007, that we memory hold as a country. And now people, you know, fast forward after floodlines, people are listening, people who are older than me, who remember, you know, were much more familiar with the actual media landscape in 2005, who are saying that they had only remembered the mythologized version of Katrina. I only remember what, what happened and, and played out in major media outlets. Mm-hmm. They only remember uh, the criminalization of black folks on the ground after in the telling of it. They didn't know that, you know, about the levees. Mm-hmm. They didn't really think about this history of institutionalized racism or floods before Katrina. Uh, so with all that in hand, uh, you know, the idea was to do something about Hurricane Katrina. Uh, I believed it was a key to understanding a lot about American history, mm-hmm. but to do it in a way that honored and uh, took care with the actual stories of New Orleans, of people in New Orleans. Right. And that was, uh, armed, we, armed with those ideas, we tried to figure out the best vehicle, the best uh, format uh, once we decided to do a podcast, and then the best narrative within that podcast to do it. Yeah. I, I mean, it's such a good podcast. If you haven't listened yet, you you absolutely must. It's what, only six episodes? Five episodes? It is eight. It's eight. Sorry. I don't want to cheap in because that those last two, the last one, I don't want to spoil anything <laughs> because I was so excited and surprised by the last one. So let me just say this to people. Listen to all eight because the last one really just, I mean, every single one is great, but the last one really puts a button on it in a way that you're not expecting. Um I'm curious because you're talking about sort of what did we learn or what what is there to learn. I feel like there's a lot of things maybe that we haven't learned and that sort of leave us still exposed from the lessons of Katrina and other floods and other um, hurricanes and other natural disasters that have disproportionately affected poor I mean, I guess almost every single natural disaster disproportionately affects poor people. But what do you feel like is the big thing that we have to learn or like where we're still really exposed or where people are exposed in that way? Well, what you just said, you know, you just mentioned that every single disaster disproportionately affects poor folks, affects racial minorities and also affects women and gender minorities also. Um those are not, that was not a universal understanding, still probably right. isn't, right. of what disasters are. It is a, it was a incredibly controversial concept hmm. in 2005 that disasters actually affected some people worse than others. And even now, you mentioned that today and people will kind of, some folks in some circles will clown that idea. You know, hmm. I think when I first did a piece on environmental racism, there were people who were putting clan hoods on hurricanes and t- saying I was calling hurricanes racist. Right, of course. Uh, just a, a, 
purposefully juvenile understanding of the concept. Right. <laughs> but that reifies a necessarily American idea that bad things are acts of chance hmm. or acts of God and maybe even acts of providence. <laughs> and right, right. that is the American understanding of, of, of disaster. But really, and that's a capitalist understanding of disaster. And, but really, and it's like, yeah. it's also the same way that we understand racism, right? right. That it's it like, it just happens. Yeah. Yeah. Like people aren't racist. Things aren't racist. It just, it just, that's, I, I don't know why you can't get a house in the same neighborhood as me. I have no idea. Maybe your credit's not good. <laughs> yeah. You know, maybe, you know, or this was just all these things, you know, they were just, they came out of nowhere. Or this, you know, people talk about stuff like Trump now. He just came out of nowhere. How, how did this yeah. happen? Right. How did this? We we were off guard. Yeah. We were caught off guard. You know, the the, the uprising in the Capitol. We were caught off guard. How did this happen? And right. every time it happens, you have to do the whole. You have to restart the engine up again, and right. how, everybody gets their serious hat on and explains to you how this happened. Right. And <laughs> of course, of course, yeah, that. That's a that's a complex that's an informational complex now that uh, purposefully elides our understanding a real rigorous understanding of race, racism, and structure, and economics in America. Hmm. So when you really start thinking about the disaster, it helps you be, begin that process of inverting and subverting that paradigm of understanding that disasters are not things that come out of nowhere they're not acts of god even things like you know unless you're talking things like meteors that truly do come out right. of space right in nowhere most disasters are ultimately functions of existing inequality and dysfunction in a society they are exclamation points at the end of a sentence right not you know, sentences sentences to themselves. Right. And Katrina is an incredible manifestation of all of that. It was, by definition, a disaster that did not have to happen. Right. It was not a super powerful storm when it hit New Orleans. It was not a direct hit. Uh, it was not, according to the Army Corps of Engineers standards, even the level of hurricane that should have broken the levee it was what happened there was even a, there was a big argument in the city over whether how to even uh, refer to this disaster people call it hurricane katrina but i think if you see spike lee's documentary it's probably more accurately referred to as the data levees broke because right. the hurricane was only contributory to the disaster right yeah wow yeah that's a good documentary. And then I think um, Michael Eric Dyson has a book also. I can't think of the name of it. Something about water rising, right? Mm -hmm. He wrote, I mean, he was one of the people in those early days after Katrina talking about the land question, about reparation right. um, in that book. And yeah. actually, I think a lot of people were reintroduced or introduced to the idea of uh, systemic racism or institutionalized racism in that dialogue after Katrina. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think, yeah, I think that's probably true for me too. I mean, I was pretty, I was an adult, but a young adult when Katrina happened. I was in college and I feel like that was one of the major shifts in my thinking about race um, and racism as something bigger than mean white people. You know, like I think that was one of the first things where I was like, oh, this feels like maybe it's bigger than just like, you know, some racist person that I'm told only lives in the South and is related to members of the clan, right? Like I was like, oh, this could be more. <laughs> um, okay, we're gonna transition slightly to book stuff, um, because that's allegedly what this podcast is about, though I could talk to you about your work probably for hours and hours. Um, so we do a thing on the podcast called Ask the Stacks where someone's written in for a book recommendation. So I'm going to read what they said and then we're going to give them a recommendation. I'm going to give them three. You can just give them one if you want. I don't want to put you on in too much pressure. So whatever comes to mind is great. Um, this is from Lauren. They say, just looking for a book to get excited about because my last few have been duds. I love lyrical, magical realism. Some of my favorites are Isabel Allende's House of Spirits. Gabriel Garcia Marquez's A Hundred Years of Solitude. And I recently finished Tanahasi Coates' The Water Dancer and loved it. I am trying to read more nonfiction, but it needs to be driven by a personal narrative or I get a little lost. Okay, Lauren, here's what I've come up with. Admittedly, I have not read two of these books, but they come to me from people who like magical realism because I am someone who does not really like magical realism and lyrical writing. <laughs> so I, I'm like the worst person to ask, but you know what? I never bow down from a challenge. So I would suggest there is a book that came out last year called Sharks and the Time of Saviors by Kwai Strong Washburn, which was on our best books of 2020 with, um, it was recommended by Christine. And also it was on Barack Obama's list last year of books that he loved. And it's about Hawaii and it's supposed to be just phenomenal. So that is one that I recommend. And then the other one, which I have not read, but I will read is The Prophets by Robert Jones Jr. It's a slavery, a queer slavery um, novel. And everything I've heard from every single person who's read it is that it's a major wow. Um, I've heard it compared to The Water Dancer. So I feel like that might be a really good one. And then my nonfiction pick for you is one that I have read and I will, you know, say that it's only one of the greatest books I've ever read, which is Men We Reaped by Jasmine Ward. Um, and it's about, it's her memoir of five years of her life where five men in her life died, um, young black men in Mississippi. Uh, and it actually sort of has a connection to sort of what we've been talking about today about environmental racism and the ways that racism disproportionately affects uh, poor people, people of color. Um, and so it, it's just it's just phenomenal. So those are my three. Van, do you have one, at least one for us? Wow. Well, you, you, you took my two of my recommendations that were on top of my head um, with Jasmine and oh. with the prophets. Okay, sorry. Um, but <laughs> but but I think within that, um, I would say I, I'm actually going to recommend another Jasmine book. Do it. Uh, another Jasmine Ward book. It, it's fiction, though. Um, so Sing Unburied Sing. Okay. Um, which to me is maybe the pinnacle of magical realism. It is a wonderful book and it really taught me a whole lot of, of, about how you can 
create, evoke emotion in a story like that. And it also teaches you a lot about Mississippi, about uh, the state of play in our carceral system, and about how it's all connected to rural life, which obviously I am interested in. And, uh, you know, it's the story that does these things outside of a context in which they usually are discussed in cities. um, And it's just beautiful. Yeah. Mm, That's such a good one. Okay, we're going to take a quick break and then we'll be back with Van's books that he loves. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. All right, we're back from our break. Van, we always start here. Two books you love, one book you hate. Two books I love. Uh, So I am a very, um, one thing I love to do in my reading schedules and calendars is I, I try to teach myself things that I wish I'd learned in college. Okay. Or in grad school. And so that means, you know, I do a lot of nonfiction reading topically. And right now, I have been really on a 
I think maybe last year kind of got to me. Um, but I've been on a, 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 a kick about understanding nuclear weapons and oh. the potential end of the world. Holy cow. <laughs> Yeah, just I some light uh, reading, just some light casual, some light, <laughs> some light reading. Uh, yeah. But you know, it, it, it's it's very instructional, informational, and useful to me to understand uh, how this dangerous, totally unethical, totally uh, has reconfigured a. Uh, global life hmm. and global politics how the technology has really uh shaped everything about this modern age and helps me understand every single issue within that a little bit better so the two books in that vein that i have been reading recently that i really love one is a, an old classic it's the making of the atomic bomb by richard rose okay um and uh it is uh just you know, it, it's a doorstopper. It's one of those like giant omnibus. This is, it teaches you from the beginnings of understanding quantum physics to understanding exactly how the bomb was made in the 40s by the Manhattan Project. Uh, it is dense and full of characters from across different countries, uh, but it is really a, was a learning experience for me. So that was uh, the, the autodidactomy has, has 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 been really interested in that one, and I'm about three quarters of the way through it. Um, I'm not sure if I'm ever going to finish it, <laughs> <laughs> but at least uh, so far, um, it's been you know useful to me. The other one is also nonfiction, but not related to nuclear um, science, and it is Audrey Lord's Breast Cancer, the Cancer Journal from mm. Audrey Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, my mother passed away in November from breast cancer, mm-hmm. and uh, I, you know, I'm st- I still don't know if I if I understand it yet. Right. I still don't know if I've totally processed it. Um, it's been a rough few months since then. And one of the books that uh, I bought for her and intended to send to her and read with her perhaps to get her spirits up was Audre Lorde's Cancer Journals. And I wasn't able to do that. She actually passed away before. It was really aggressive cancer. Mm. Um, we thought she had a lot more time than she did. And uh, since then, I just decided I was going to read it myself. And really, what I've gotten out of that book has been so so comforting uh, for me and has helped me understand a little bit more what my mother went through in her battle against breast cancer. Now, Audre Lorde died of breast cancer at the age of 58, I believe. My mother was 56. And the kind of ups and downs she details, the way that deciding to get a mastectomy uh, really conflicted with ingrained issues of self-image and things like that. How battling a diagnosis, an aggressive diagnosis, changed her outlook on the world and turned her in 
inward and, and, and really boosted her drive to connect with friends and family and outlined a sense of duty that had been present in her life the whole time. Reading that in the absence of being able to have those conversations with my mother because it was so aggressive and fast, that's really helped me uh, begin this this process of processing. Right. Um, yeah, and so I'd recommend it even if you aren't in the same situation. It's a really good book and it's a really good meditation on health and wellness and disability. And, uh, you know, I think after the year a lot of us have had with this pandemic, I think it could be helpful for a lot of folks in just making a uh, sense of what has happened and what is happening. And it's a meditation on grief at the end of the day. Yeah. I have to read that book. I've still not read it. So you're really pushing it on my list. Um, what about a book that you hate? A book that I hate. Oh, see, this is, <laughs> I am, uh, I hate giving, you know, critiques in public of things I hate. But one thing I, uh, one thing that I say that I'm sure of is that I hate 48 Laws of Power. Ugh. <sighs> <laughs> it is a it is a bad brained book. It is part of a genre of bad books. Um, it is just you know the conceit of it is objectively terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know the idea that it is so clearly geared towards providing young men, especially, a blueprint toward navigating the world. But the blueprint is basically, it's in the title. It's you amassing as much power over other people as possible, manipulating them in whatever way gained you an advantage. And it's just, you know, it is disheartening to see people still reading it today and still living by it today uh, because it's just such a backwards way of living. Yeah. 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 It's bad. It's very bad. I won't make you talk bad about anything anymore. That was the only one. I will allow you to just gush now for the rest of our time together. Um, good, good. What? So it sounds like you maybe read a bunch of books at the same time. Is that true? You can read multiple books and kind of graze from one for a while and sort of switch. Are you reading anything else right now? Um, right now, yeah, I read a bunch at the same time. Um, right now I'm reading Midnight in, in Chernobyl as oh. part of that uh nuclear history yeah Higgin, uh, Higginbotham or something right? yeah yeah name. yeah so far it's really good yeah and I'm also reading uh my friend Clint Smith's uh, <gasps> book I'm reading a galley of how the word is passed mine is allegedly and in the mail right now and I cannot wait for it to get here it is a great book oh my gosh. uh and um you know I uh, again I am just a a fan of all things southern before anything else really and the way that clint really breaks down and encounters these pillars of southern culture uh, my father was a he is a really big civil war he's a civil war historian in some ways so he's he's, he's we went to all the the battlefields uh, we went to Petersburg, we went to Appomattox Courthouse, hmm. but seeing Clint delve into the black stories hmm. behind all these places 
gives me perspective on them that I even, you know, as familiar as I was with the sites, I didn't have that information. Mm. So it's wonderful. Oh, oh my gosh. What else, what other books that are coming out are you excited about or other books on your list to read, even if they're not brand new? Hmm. Other books on the list right now. Um, I am trying to begin a uh, new phase of of history book reading once okay. I get past this nuclear history. <laughs> um, and so uh, I think now is a good time for me to begin a history of the presidents. Oh, um, understanding the U.S. presidency a little better than I do. And so to that end, obviously, um, the big grant book is on the list. Mm. Um, also, uh, Vicksburg, which is about grant, um, is on the list. Uh, there's a, um, let's see, I'm trying to think of the other ones that are on the list. Um, just so many. Yes. A, you know, my bookshelf in my office is like 75% books that I have not yet read. Welcome to my life. <laughs> and my wife, Caron, keeps begging me to stop buying books because we have nowhere to put them. Yes. Yes. And um, you have small children, so I'm sure they t- like to take things off all of the lower shelves. Yes. Nothing on the... It's like if you look at trees yes. that, that sort of like have all the leaves on the bottom level uh, gone, no book on the lower shelves in my house has a jacket anymore. Yes, because I, this is uh, me. <laughs> yeah, Charlotte, my nine-month-old uh, daughter, she absolutely loves eating book jackets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Some for some reason they're like really delicious. I guess because my children, I have twins that are thirteen months, and they any book that's left out is a full-on just it's gone. It's gone. I'm like, did you have to like rip the pages? Like, don't and also don't you have your own books? Like, you have a whole bookshelf and you never touch those. <laughs> yeah okay let's and I see just oh. got sorry sorry no go, i just go, go. got black futures in the mail oh my god it's so good <gasps> i want to read it oh my god it is like the most delicious hug love just it was on my personal top 10 books of 2020 i just everything about it was just such a Oh, oh my God. It's you'll love it. It's done with such care. I just can't even talk about how much I love it. Um, okay. What about a book that you love to recommend to people? Like your go-to? Aside from Lord of the Rings. Okay. Which big commitment. It's a big commitment, yes. And it's my favorite book. Okay. My favorite series of all time. Okay. Um aside from that, the one that I keep coming back to in terms of just, uh, I think I find it the easiest to recommend, is uh, Hanif Abdurkeeb's Go Ahead in the Rain. Mm. It, uh, you know, it's it's about, on the surface, it's, it's a history story about Tribe Called Quest. Um, it's about the music. But for me, there were so many things that resonated with uh just growing up in hip hop and trying to find a place in the world and trying to find an an identity in music and finding music that matched with your identity. It is, it's a powerful book and it's one that I still, you know, I I go back to every couple months just to make sure it's as good as I remember. And it always is. (laughs) 
He's got a new one coming out in March, too. Yes, he does. Which I'm excited I'm ex- about. Yeah. Everything Neef, you should read. Yeah, he's great. He's so great. Yeah. Um, okay, what about, what's your ideal reading setup? Like, if you were in your perfect location, perfect time of day, do you have a beverage or a snack? Where are you? Like, what is the dream reading spot for you? So the dream reading spot is on a beach somewhere. Okay. <laughs> but uh, I have had very few successful dreams in the past <laughs> few years. Yes. <laughs> so right now, my ideal reading setup is somewhere where my kids are not. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> I have found that in closets. Okay. I found it in the laundry room. Okay. <laughs> Sometimes I escape to the basement. Okay. Um, sometimes I make up trips to the grocery store and just take a book with me. Yeah. <laughs> and go drive around the corner and read. I love that. Yes, I lock myself in my bedroom. I'm like, someone else is in charge right now. Thank you. All right. This is sort of like the little power round where you just answer with the title, basically. Don't try to give too much explanation. Last book that made you laugh. This is a problem when you... Are reading nuclear history. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I thought that might be hard for you. Um, What about last book that made you cry? Last book that made me cry, aside from uh, the cancer journals, Mm -hmm. aside from Go Ahead in the Rain, which I absolutely bawled over, (laughs) was Nine Lives. Mm. And it's a story about uh, people in uh, who were involved in Hurricane Katrina. Okay. The last book that made you angry. It's not, I read it a lot, but it makes me angry every time. And it's Black Reconstruction in America, mm. Du Bois. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because for me, it just, uh, so much there is, is, it makes it clear that we had a real opportunity, mm-hmm. that the country had a real opportunity to be something different. Mm-hmm. And we blew it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not we, but the country blew it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it sort of feels like we're at another crossroads like that right now, huh? Right. And every time I think about stuff that's happening today, and I've been writing about uh, the Voting Rights Act and the end of Jim Crow, and just the idea that Jim Crow didn't have to happen, right. that my parents could have been born as legitimately free citizens, mm-hmm. that makes me angry. Yeah. 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 What about a book that you are proud to have read? Actually, okay, so the one that I'm uh, most proud of recently was uh, James Baldwin's uh, biography, mm. James Baldwin. Okay. Um, because it was something for me that, uh, you know, I'd read a lot of James Baldwin and had not done a whole lot of serious study about who he was and what made him. That's interesting. I've actually not done that either. I, w- I should read more about it his life as opposed to just his work. Um, Okay. We're going to do just two more, just two more. One is if you were a high school teacher, what's the book that you would assign? Ooh, this is a good one. Um, (laughs) So the book that I would assign everyone um, is Reconstruction, Eric Foner's book. Okay. And for me, I think it is, Although I prefer Black Reconstruction mm-hmm. just to read and think it's a superior book, I think Foner does a really good job in Reconstruction 
at peeling back a lot of the most common myths that are uh, put in our heads, especially at that level of high school civics hmm. and history and social studies and stuff like that. So for me, that book is like such an ideal antidote to that. a lot of the ways that we are indoctrinated, especially for me in North Carolina. Yeah, that's so good. Okay, this is really exciting for me. <laughs> I'm so excited to ask this question today. We always do this question. And you are the first person to get to do this with the new president. So as long as I've had the podcast, we had to do it with 45 and you get to do it with 46. And I just am really happy to, to have this moment. So congratulations. You're making history today. All right. If you could require the current president of the United States of America to read one book, what would it be? Ooh, okay. Okay. This one um, is. Honestly, for me, it's an absolute no-brainer. Okay. And because it's still the same as it would have been for Trump, as okay. it would have been for every single president. And it's Kindred mm. by Octavia Butler. Mm. For me, number one, I have yet to meet a white man of a certain age who has read Kindred. Yeah. And so for <laughs> me, it's it's just a, you know, like a like a kind of trolley pick. Um, mm -hmm. But also it is, if I had to pick a book that could perhaps move people in power who are used to being in power to th rethinking how they should use that power or mm -hmm. maybe how they should give it up right. and rethinking how it works on the other side. For me, number one, the best vehicle for doing that is speculative fiction. Mm. And for me, Kindred is the pinnacle of black speculative fiction that does this kind of work that talks about the legacy of power in America and that challenges you to, uh, you know, I, I think it's impossible to finish reading Kindred and not read anything else right. along those lines. So for me, right. it's like a starter. It, it, it's like a like a gateway drug almost. Oh my God, such a good answer. Okay, everybody, we are out of time today. We will be back with Van on February 24th to discuss The New Wilderness by Diane Cook, which I'm really excited to get into environmental justice talk with you. So everyone else, in the meantime, read The New Wilderness, go check out Floodlines, check out Van's stuff over at The Atlantic. And Van, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And everyone else, we will see you in the stacks. Thank you so much to Van for being our guest today. And thank you to Becca Tobin for helping coordinate this interview. Van will be back on Wednesday, February 24th for the Stacks Book Club discussion of The New Wilderness by Diane Cook. Please make sure you're subscribed to the Stacks wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, be sure to leave a rating and a review. For more from the Stacks, follow us on social media at the Stacks Pod on Instagram and at the Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. Sebastian Alcala is our sound editor and producer. Our graphic designer is Robin McCright, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. The Stacks is created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas.